America's involvement in Vietnam was a long and complicated ordeal that cost trillions of inflation-adjusted dollars and millions of lives. Why the media decided to fixate on the massacre at Mei where 400 or so people perished, raises questions as to the seriousness of America's political process and the hypocrisy of how it views itself. A champion for freedom and democracy that seeks to enforce internationally through bloodless conflict. A phrase with at least two glaring contradictions makes the United States one of the most confusing empires in world history. I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E Who's the leader of the pack that's made for you and me? Hello, welcome to the show. I am Nick, and I am joined tonight by Adam and Hank. Hello. Hey, everyone. So, today we will be discussing the time when the full might of the American world clown was unleashed in Southeast Asia in the form of a a terror war against the peasantry and the water buffalo. So, before we get into that, I just wanted to say... Thank you to everybody who has donated to the show. We appreciate it a lot. And someone had made a comment that the way to donate is a little bit obscure. And it is that way on purpose. If you are interested in donating to the program, uh, go to our website, myth20c.com. And there will be a donate uh, widget. or It'll send you to somewhere. And There's that just is a link fact. at the bottom. There's a link. Oh, at the bottom. Okay. All right. Yeah. It well, says with that out of the way, uh, time to talk about murder. So on uh, the 16th of March, 1968, uh, there was a massacre of the Vietnamese peasantry that has become quite notorious. Uh, it was actually part of, there was... On, I believe almost the same day uh, occurring contemporaneously with it was another massacre and when you add up the two together it's probably somewhere around 500 Vietnamese who were slaughtered by the American forces and it is kind of the uh, uh, focal point of uh, Vietnam War revisionism at least in the public mind that this was the high watermark of American brutality in Vietnam and today we're going to discuss how that is not true. Uh, My Lai, as it was called, uh, I'm not sure if the peasants themselves actually called their hamlet My Lai, but that's how it was designated on the American maps. Uh, My Lai, hardly an aberration, was in fact typical of the way in which war was conducted and is conducted to this day. Uh, some things have changed since Vietnam, namely 
the PR and spin capabilities of the American system, as well as the absence of the draft, have allowed for these things to now happen without a lot of scrutiny. Uh, and now there is a good book that I had talked to Hank about previously, but we never had talked in detail about this. It's sort of coincidental. We both like the book, and I haven't yet to ask Hank why does he like the book. The book is called Kill Anything That Moves uh, by Nick Terse. And Hank, what did you... Uh, why did why did you enjoy this book? So the book, I mean, it, it's tempting to just kind of lump it in as a collection of anecdotes, but when you read a little bit more about uh, counterinsurgency campaigns in general, both uh, successful and not successful ones, the goal of a counterinsurgency campaign is. I mean, a successful counterinsurgency campaign is basically to terrorize the population. There's just no two ways about it. You have to make it less appealing uh, to have anything to do with the rebels uh, than it is to not have anything to do with the rebels. And the way that you do that is by these... uh, micro and macro acts of terror that cause a narrative to be engendered that my god like don't talk with that man you're going to get our village sabrenica or however you pronounce it or milaid or uh the uh, the famous massacre in el salvador um i was just reading about etc um and in order to uh, make the case that that, in fact, was like the war in Vietnam was substantially a counterinsurgency campaign, even though like there are these decisive like there's this whole like revisionist strain that emphasizes the role of the conventional NVA and like that this actually was a interstate uh, conflict and not really a indigenously led guerrilla conflict. But in operation, it ends up being a counterinsurgency campaign and these are like a panoply of things that make it look like a counterinsurgency campaign which is to say like when you sniff out any inkling of support on the part of some local village for the insurgents you try to set an example and so the the entire book is establishing that thesis. I think if anything, it was a little bit weak on uh, contextualizing it um, within the kind of broader sphere of how counterinsurgency campaigns end up going down. Um, But uh, I think that, you know, in terms of proving that thesis, it was extremely effective. You can really only do that um, by way of either anecdotes or, you know, these sort of damning, um, documents um, of the sorts that exist for, you know, the German counterinsurgency doctrine or whatever. Yeah, I think the thing about American power and American imperialism is the schizophrenic nature of it. Uh, the main issue here, to my mind, is that Americans and the American ruling class cannot publicly own up to the fact that they are waging a terror war, a psychological warfare. Um, 
instead. And this is something that they have improved because back then there was, I mean, Westmoreland, for instance, got into some controversy. I believe it was made more public with the release of the 1974 documentary film or propaganda film, however you wish to look at it, Hearts and Minds. Uh, where Moreland said something to the effect of the Oriental places a lower value on human life than the Westerner. Uh, and this it's like, uh, what does that even mean? Yeah, like it, well, it's, it sounds it's like true, but that's <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, but it, it really helps to drill down into that because, you know, you can talk about a commander, um, you know, a commander in a military you know, there, there's plenty more can, cannon fodder where that came from. Sort of a, you know, Ulysses S. Grant uh, sort of worldview um, that one is perfectly willing to fight a war of attrition um, and to uh, to sacrifice uh, troops to that end. I mean, that, like, that, it seems like the claim, though, is more uh, metaphysical than that. In, in a way that really isn't empirically uh, justified or is like weirdly ill-posed. I mean, how do you interpret that? It's also an odd sort of claim to make because a lot of the thinking, at least during the middle of the, or the, the heat of the war, uh, and 74 was after the war, was uh, to use this concept of attrition where they were basically trying to kill as many Vietnamese as possible to make them submit and his statement would imply that that is not a factor which actually yeah, body in retrospect counts. he might be right we'll get into body because, count we'll get into body count yeah. we'll, we'll talk about this later but there, uh, I there's just, a contradiction I to, there yeah I, I wanted to put into context just the the American so it's, it, and it's changed because a lot has changed with the American ruling class since then uh, something like a, uh, an anti-communist struggle is, is no longer a justification for for a, a terror war. Now it's moved into the realm of perpetual war is now police action. It's now pacification and the, you know, trying to sell the idea that the particular uh, drug lords that you've set up, for instance, you know, Hamid Karzai or something is representative of the future of democracy and, and liberalism in Afghanistan or something like this. Uh, furthermore, it's just, it, it's not. It's not something. America doesn't have the spirit and the foundations, the ideological foundations for, for real, uh, full-throated total imperialism, and colonialism. In fact, the United States spent the early part of the struggle and post-war struggle in Indochina undermining French colonialism, uh, which they succeeded in doing. Uh, today, I don't want to dwell on the bigger aspects of the war because I would like in fact to do more Vietnam content I think it's something that's not covered very well but today I just want to talk mostly about the carnage and what led to the carnage and Hank you mentioned the revisionists talking about the importance of battles since this was back then uh, coming from the, the war against Europe and then the Korean War uh, this was in the minds of the managers uh, very much and so they wanted to produce battles that was the a metric that they had used and Vietnam was if you guys are familiar with the I think he's a, a sociologist uh, William Gibson not the very good science fiction writer but he wrote a book called The Perfect War uh, and he, he talks about it basically it's the managerial approach to war fighting which is 
very clearly seen in the figures like, for example, Robert McNamara, where they're looking for certain quantitative metrics because the Americans don't have any kind of political understanding. It's, there's no understanding that this could be an organic, homegrown, internal revolution. And so the, there's... Give a, a little there's background some, on him, well, if I may. Uh, he's one of, considered one of the whiz kids of, I think it was Kennedy's administration, and he was... He became famous um, at Ford Motor Company, where he was actually briefly uh, CEO, or at least offered that before he joined the Kennedy cabinet. And if any of you have seen Fight Club, where the narrator is introducing what he does for a living, which is basically go out and look at crash victims' vehicles and decide if it's worth it for the company to do a recall, that sort of statistical uh, analysis and decision theory was developed actually by McNamara at Ford. Uh, around but and this. before then like so there's a really great book um it's a uh, public domain operations research in the second world war and uh robert mcnamara actually worked in the office of statistical control and they're uh, sort of the the entire field of operations research was invented during world war ii to figure out how best to fight a bomber war of attrition against Germany, how many planes you're losing, what you're destroying in return, um, and how to get the most bang for your buck. Uh, and it was extremely successful, incredibly successful. And um, would you say uh, that this is, it is successful in the context more of a conventional war, but when you are dealing with a protracted counterinsurgency terror war, uh, well, it so this, leads to distortions in the statistics because a dead Vietnamese, you know, uh, you want to make that dead Vietnamese a Viet Cong. And you yeah, want to make so this massacre of various little uh, rice hamlets into, you know, battles on paper. Right. And, and this is this is where the um, the sort of uh, original elite story versus the revisionists versus the counter-revisionists versus the counter-counter-revisionists, of which this book is sort of the last wave, um, takes place like it actually was fairly effective uh in as much as it was deployed um against the actual north vietnamese state infrastructure so there were a lot of issues with are we actually going to put these recommendations into effect because you know there's now like there's now access to the north vietnamese state archives which is where some of the counter 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 revisionists are coming in um with uh really good books like uh hanoi's war i really recommend that book um or um black uh september i want to say black some month talking about the last um part of the war but they actually get into some of the internal north vietnamese decision making and it becomes clear that the vietnamese war was I mean it was not a indigenous conflict in the sense that like some peasant in South Vietnam decides that he's gonna like fight the man and picks up an SKS. Like the Viet Cong did not exist. You had southern detachments of the North Vietnamese army, full stop. There was no independent faction known as the Viet Cong. And if you look at their internal decision-making, there is actually um, a part in the war where they get really concerned about things like, well, shit, if they bomb uh, the Red River uh, dikes, um, like 
were basically fucked. Um, or like, you know, certain industrial targets ditto. And the U.S. uh, was determined to sort of limit this war and not turn it into this quasi-exterminationist campaign of the sort that was uh, waged against Germany in the Second World War for various um, geostrategic reasons um, that you can agree or disagree with. Uh, But, I mean... It, one, I think, plausible interpretation of this whole thing is that, you know, the whole strategic bombing campaign operations research driven whatever didn't fail so much as it wasn't really tried. And instead they tried to like half ass the the kind of cargo cult version where instead of being like, okay, well, what are the strategic vulnerabilities of North Vietnam, the country that we're engaged in combat with? Well, they have this like really vulnerable set of dikes and dams all over their major farmland. And if we bomb those, then the entire country is going to first be flooded and then starve to death. So let's do that. But instead, like you take the same approaches and you try to apply them to this micro scale where it's evidently, I mean, it's empirically true after the fact that these guys just actually are not going to give up. They have plenty of peasants, so they will continue sending peasants to shoot at you, take pot shots, etc., until they're no longer able to like that's their primary strategic goal is to win this war like they will do everything up to threatening the like actual existence of their country in order to win this war so if you're not threatening the basic existence of their country which the u.s was never prepared to do you're not going to win a war of attrition against them so i think where you mentioned that that they're not willing to give up is i think the key and also the difference, I think, between Germany and North Vietnam was that North Vietnam was being supplied by a lot of uh, help from the other communist countries. And even though the uh, targeted bombing, strategic bombing that the U.S. was doing did end up destroying a lot of the North Vietnamese productive capacity, that didn't matter as much given that they were still getting all these supplies from these other allies of theirs. And the fact that they were primarily a land, particularly jungle-based army made strategic targeting very ineffective. So I think the, the big difference when you're fighting, you know, over uh, farmland in uh, the uh, the Rhine and you're fighting over basically a bunch of tree canopies that you can't see under. Yeah, and there was there was zero political thinking that went into concepts like body count. This is purely managerial quantitative. Well, on one hand of it, there, there is there was real political thinking that went into the the more dirty operations that people who knew what they were doing what you see grew out of things like the phoenix program uh there was a it was very cynical political thinking and certainly had no real thought to there, there's to no us- other kind of political thinking than cynical political thinking well by cynical i mean short term I, I mean, sure, I don't, that, you're, I agree, but, but I mean that it was uh, just like now there's no real thought to how you make a legitimate Afghan puppet state. Uh, there was, it was about polarizing and creating 
zero middle ground. You know, being neutral was not an option. And when with Phoenix, you had which was of course a targeted assassination program run by the CIA. Uh, it allowed for the various local criminals in the um, South Vietnamese government to get back at their personal enemies. There's basic database. And this is again things that are going on to this day uh, in the American occupations in, in the Middle East. But basically, you just have like any anonymous tip, any, any anyone who has a score to settle can can inform and put somebody on on the list. If you're on the list, you're there for liquidation. And they did this knowing that people who were not real political targets would be put on the list because of the effects, the psychological effects of that. Yes, and, which is classic counterinsurgency. That's what yeah. you that's what you do. That's it's what happens. Yes. Yeah. yeah, correct. And in addition to that, it was also a there was real thought put into destroying these villages, just the countryside itself, just raising the countryside because there was that uh, what they wanted was to drive people into the city, which swelled to uh, huge. I think it was like, there was some 17 million people in Saigon, uh, kind of the height of the war where, where they can be monitored better. Yeah. Where they can be subject to the metrics and they can, well, they weren't well. I mean, there were plenty of operations where. Well, compared uh, to today, sure, but it, it's obviously easier to keep tabs on things if they're in a small area versus spread yeah. out. Yeah, well, then that's where they're the Americans operate the out of. Yeah, that's where they have their lackeys and their puppets, etc., and that's where they want to operate from. Uh, so, what was done to the countryside was just, you know, was overkill, as they would say, which was just the massive ordinance that was dropped. You know, you had, I think it was some 400,000 tons of napalm, which was designed to do exactly that, as well as Agent Orange, which was to destroy crops, ecocide. Uh, and, napalm. And, and, the, and the forest canopies that they could see beneath mm -hmm. it. Yep. Uh, but yep. Are you referring to the north or the whole country? The whole country. Much of the bombing took place in the south. Sure. Um, what I was going to uh, add was that the... In the South, uh, at least in the beginning, what they were trying to do was set up these sort of enclaves to encourage people to join the sort of Southern puppet government uh, and not join the uh, uh, N NBA uh, or the uh, the uh, strategic uh, Yeah, and because yeah, you know, exactly. if you were neutral or you joined the uh, NBA, yeah, you you would have your uh, wife raped in front of you as well as your daughter your daughters and they would all be executed and your family plots would be destroyed permanently. Oh, of course, white phosphorus was another uh, innovation of ordinance for that time, especially mixed with napalm. Uh, I believe the Air Force procured somewhere around 3 million pounds or tons, sorry. <laughs> and uh, the pineapples, which are uh, the B uh, BLU-3s. Uh, as well as the guavas, both appropriately named the CBU-24s. The guavas being slightly larger than the pineapples, and those were cluster bombs. They had steel pellets in them. Um, pineapples, 250 pellets, the guavas, 300. And you could drop them, uh, a 1,000 of them, over 400 yards. So whatever, you know, 1,000 times 250, just a rain of steel. Uh, you also had the AC-130 conversions into the gunships, the Spookies, which also still being used today. 
in I guess modified form. Though most of the the majority of the sorties, bombing sorties, were actually not done by B fifty twos, but were F four Phantoms. So, with this ordinance uh, just being brought down in the countryside, as well as the emphasis on body count uh, and very unclear rules of engagement, uh, led especially you got to a point where you know if they they say in the literature you read a lot about how, and I, it was also in the I think it was in Platoon. I could be wrong. Maybe we talk a little bit about Platoon at some point, but. A platoon was probably like the first real revisionist Vietnam movie, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, it was part Apocalypse of... Now predates it by like yeah. four years or so. But I wouldn't call Apocalypse Now as like yeah. I don't know if it's you not. It's sort of surreal. As, not it's a fantasy surreal. film set yeah. vaguely in South Asia. I mean, it's shot in the Philippines. Well, I think most Vietnam films. Not are most shot in of them are. Yeah. Yeah, but it yeah Apocalypse Now, uh, love it or hate it, it's, it is not a historical film um, stones platoon is it may be worth talking about we can get into it when we start talking about the culture side of this but just on on the subject of overkill and body count what this led to the, oh, the with the uh I, I was gonna mention the black pajamas they say it's like oh they're wearing black pajamas so basically if you're wearing the traditional garb of a vietnamese peasant well yes you're clearly the enemy and as well as if you run away from the Americans, then you're an enemy, um, and you could be machine gun from the air or shot. On Which the, the author details like that. That was not just a creation of that book. Um, he describes a very vivid uh, scene. Um, you know, I I last read this book um, like several months ago and can't find my copy of it. So anything that I can actually recall from this stuck in my mind. Um, he recalls uh, this gunship uh, descending over a rice paddy, and there's this really eerie scene where the uh, the villagers are kind of very um, ostentatiously not noticing the helicopter that's hovering like ten feet above their heads, and they're just continue going yes. through their motions because yeah. they know if they look up, then then. Uh, they may be shot, right? It's it's a it's a one of the uh, screwing the wrong end of the dog type situations. If you're a Vietnamese peasant, uh, there's very little you can do to communicate or to display p- proper fealty to the American occupiers. But all these dynamics at play the the quantitative managerial aspects of the war the uh, the capitalist war production side, where it was believed that, you know, I mean, counterinsurgency, you can comment on this, Hank, but counterinsurgency has evolved a little bit. But back then, there was a, the naive assumption that, well, if you have the larger production capacity, then you will win the conflict. And so it's just up the ordinance. Yeah, Seridus Paribus, that's true. I mean, if you're. So on it. it yeah. yeah, like so even in when the US withdrew in nineteen seventy-three, there was sort of a tacit uh agreement between them and the South Vietnamese that okay, well we did this whole Richard Nixon policy of Vietnamization, um, where essentially like 
you can have the money, you can have the air support, you cannot have American bodies anymore. So the U.S. would provide whatever materiel was necessary for the South to continue perpetuating itself as well as enough, uh, enough air support to prevent any sort of realistic, actual North Vietnamese invasion. So essentially, as long as the South was willing and able to continue fighting its own counterinsurgency war, the U.S. would assist them in that uh, effort and confine it to that level of escalation. Now, the U.S. Congress essentially betrayed them uh, and said, well, actually, no, you get nothing. You get zilch. And so at that point in 1974 or so, like the thing that ended the, the Vietnamese war was not American uh, withdrawal, per se, of its ground troops or the, you know, just capitulation of the South Vietnamese government to this insurgency campaign. It was an actual like armored thrust by the North Vietnamese army like, from the north across the border into the south. Um, and at that point, you know, they could no longer uh, hold out. But it was a conventional war in the final stage. Um, and, you know, had the U.S. Like you can you can actually make like a, a counter hypothetical that if you actually continue this bleeding ulcer of a war indefinitely, like as Afghanistan has shown us, you can really drag these things out perpetually. And you can't necessarily win them without going full exto-genocidal counterinsurgency. But you can keep from losing, per se, um, until you get tired of it and leave whatever wreckage behind. Well, the, the, this is the problem, again, with the American idea of imperialism and conquest. They have no intention of formalizing their rule over one of these places and establishing, you know, bringing their own pe explicit people in to live there and rule over it as colonials. Instead, they're going to maintain the fiction that some little pissant narco state is going to become some legitimate, you know, liberal capitalist style homo disco. And you could do it like you could you can take these little thug empires like I mean, Charlemagne was a thug, right? Like half the Roman emperors were thugs like thuggery is what you have immediately before you like put on a fancy robe and, you know, you turn from a pirate into an emperor and like you can prop these people up as long as you don't sort of demand that they do it nicely or ideologically, uh, I mean, you know, the, the counterpoint to this is the Soviet experience in Afghanistan where, you know, they were not particularly light-handed, but they were also propping up a communist regime in a Islamic country. So it's also not sufficient that you just have a sufficient level of brutality and some toady uh, back in the capital. Like, you actually have to have somebody with the capacity to rule and you know the the necessary like level of carnage uh, for that rule to actually take empirical effect but the us is never willing to fight that sort of war and it would have been insane for them to propose in 1964 5 6 7 etc through the end to fight that sort of war 
So, I mean, I, like, you're right, Nick. Like, the, this is the classic blunder of the, the Vietnamese War. Like, it's not a operational or tactical or strategic failure, although there were plenty of those. It was the decision to fight without being cognizant of what it would actually take to win and what would happen in the absence of that. Mm, yeah. <clears throat> so to give greater context, I'm open talking a bit about me live. I don't want to dwell on me live, but the point that Terse makes, and one thing I should say about Terse is, well, so his book, first of all, it's, it is called kill anything that moves. And the title comes from uh, various incarnations of the same order in the bureaucratized structure of the, the managerial kill machine. Uh, there was a, you know, you had a lot of plausible deniability, et cetera, because again, as Hank was just saying, you can't just, you can't make that the official policy, but it gets passed down the ranks and you have the, the variations of say, you know, kill, kill anything that breathes, uh, kill them all, kill anything that moves. And what Terse's book does is it it just by samples it demonstrates that these were outgrowths of the actual military strategy and american war fighting in addition well one one criticism i would have well, not so much a criticism but just it's not the subject of the book is it's not a book about the phoenix program uh but he gives just passing mention to the phoenix program these tactics were what the CIA was doing initially, and then it was writ large into the general, you know, full American military presence and physical occupation. But this is the stuff they were doing with South, uh, the South Vietnamese, many of whom they, they even emptied asylums at one point, you know, prisons and things to do this. But they just had they had killers and they would go through and, and terrorize and murder selective people. And the broader American war really was just Phoenix writ large. It wasn't uh, some anomaly. It was how it was meant to be done. And the emphasis on things like the body count and just the general denial created this, this schizophrenic atmosphere, which, you know, in comes a few points I want to make about how this stuff comes out in, in the culture war more at home. So Milai, for example, I think people may be familiar with the fact that Milai was broke by none other than Seymour Hirsch, or as uh, Sibel Edmonds would call him, CIA more Hirsch. And it was the beginnings of his credibility as the go-to um, CIA reporter. There's a lot we could talk about with Seymour Hirsch in detail. But I think it's instructive to point out that Hirsch, I don't know how many years ago it was, but he eventually revealed who his source was for Milai. And it was a man named Jeffrey Cowan, his co-ethnic. And Cowan, uh, interestingly enough, has had a very checkered career amongst the highest ranks of the establishment. He is a sitting member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And for a time, he was actually the head of Voice of America, which is the CIA uh, propaganda uh, station. 
you know, it'd be put into various countries. Like they were the ones who broadcast like the, the velvet underground type stuff of plastic palace people in Eastern Europe. They, they have in various lines, they have a Farsi version, et cetera. It's, it's a way of promoting the American culture disease to, you know, countries that are going to fall under the target of American imperialism or neo-colonialism or what have you subversion, the American world subversion project. So the guy, you know, I have, can't present, uh, evidence that he was military or CIA explicitly, but this is a very establishment figure. And it's also instructive that Nilai was put out during the Nixon administration rather than Johnson. If I had to speculate, I would say that nothing like that would be allowed to have been put out under Johnson, the favored candidate of the uh, the usurpers of the American machine. So I will just I'll just be blunt. I suspect that Milai was a limited hangout in addition to a way of building up the portfolio of someone who would go on to be a favored person for more high-level disinformation in the form of Seymour Hirsch. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? Well, we'll look at, uh, so look at what the response was to the incident. Um, it was kind of turned into a uh, polarizing event, not a um, kind of a universally decried uh, massacre. But uh, I remember you can still look up, I think, on YouTube, the Ballad of William Calley, um, who is the, you know, as far as I understand, he was not uh, the, uh, he was the fall guy, essentially. Yeah, he was the for, one who was hung out to dry. Right. Um, there was obviously a lot of people above him uh, and a lot of people below him who were eminently participating uh, in those events. Um, but he was the guy that they actually prosecuted. And I don't believe uh, offhand, I don't think he ever actually served any time. If I remember, Hank, he served like three, he was sentenced to life and he served three years under house arrest. Yeah, it was, it was house arrest and ultimately commuted or something like that. Yeah. Um, and he was sort of turned into this uh, bizarre right-wing folk hero. Uh, and it's possible for me to see that in the context of the broader uh, Nixonian um, domestication of foreign policy. Uh, I, I share your suspicions, Nick, that this was a, uh, a cultivated uh, event that was designed to push kind of a, uh, a meta narrative about uh about Vietnam and in particular um, to sort of adjust to the domestic tension level. Well, I do too. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of the Abu Ghraib stuff that was going on in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And yep. what is sort of, what always never made any sense to me was why do they fixate on these events given the sheer magnitude of people dying compared to these individual events? And it, it can only, to me, mean that it's it's serving some propaganda value or simply just a sensationalist value to get attention through the media. But from a well, sort of rational point of view, it, it does not stand out as something that's that significant because, again, we're dealing with millions of people who are basically losing their lives. And so well, not Adam, 50, okay. you know. Very good point. And I have a lot. I could do a whole show on that. Uh, so, yes, it it does take away from the general 
carnage, but more importantly, it presents something like Abu Ghraib as a, as an again like Milai as an aberration rather than a product of uh, standard operating procedure, the general strategy. There, are, for every Abu Ghraib that gets you know blasted and publicized, there's twenty others. You know, these are. This is just. I mean, and by the know, way, we this, know for a fact that like there was a like there was a American still most likely is because these things have never been repudiated. But during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars at their height, like there was an active American explicit torture program going on like that. That's that was like a explicitly signed off part of American policy. And so, you know, to be like, oh, prison abuses. But, you know, this this private thought or whatever, um, you know, we're going to hang her out to dry. And so we've shut down this prison. I mean, I think that's that's pretty textbook there. And by the way, this exact stuff was going on in Vietnam. The exact same tactics used at RBI were, were being used in Vietnam. Uh, even water waterboarding was, as far as I can tell, I mean, it's probably as old as time, but in the American context, it was more or less created in Vietnam. The same torture techniques. Uh, the CIA-run prisons where you have, you know, your your footmen, GIs, go out and nab just people from random village and they turn them over to the CIA, extreme rendition, etc. All these tactics were at play in Vietnam. The only thing that has really changed in how America fights or wages a these counterinsurgency terror campaigns against random backwoods peasants is the PR dimension. And I think that comes from the mastering the art of the limited hangout and the controlled opposition. Uh, because take another example. Uh, so in the in the process of this, I, I should add that what what ended up happening is on the home front uh, in the culture war, you had, I mean, Vietnam was really the final, the final blow to the old WASP elite. And it was in the wake of Vietnam and the manufactured counterculture that we've talked about before on the program, you had the ascendancy of various Jewish troublemakers into positions of power. Uh, and what happened was the people who were waging this war, a lot of these people would be, had their careers ruined over it and replaced by Jews. An example of that would be, for instance, the uh, I think he's Milwaukee. He's the the guy who r rules Milwaukee with an iron Talmudic fist, uh, Paul Sogan or something to that effect. Uh, he's been mayor on and off Milwaukee forever. He was a big figure of the of uh, the anti-war movement, and, and that's not to say that there wasn't a genuine. I mean, you had a lot of people coming back from that war who were traumatized and who you know had deep misgivings about what they had been doing because they didn't understand the purpose of it. Uh, in fact, that's the origin of Nick Terse's book. He was studying for some kind of medical, you know, psychiatric type uh, doctoral thesis. And that's how he stumbled upon the uh, war crimes working group files because someone had said to him, well, well, Nick, uh, have you considered that uh, witnessing or participating in war crimes might be an origin of post-traumatic stress disorder? And so that's what sent him on his path to researching the book. So in the culture war context, I mean, these people were being propped up. You have uh, Cy Hirsch, I mentioned, uh, and various, I mean, just 
take someone like John Kerry. I mean, John Kerry comes back and he says a lot of the same things that um, Terse wrote about in his book. He describes the mass rapes and torture, uh, executions, etc. But he goes on to support those exact same policies in the Middle East, hmm. you know, and he gets gets his counterculture cred. I mean, yeah, I can't tell you how many are, times I've seen that footage of him wearing that like army jacket testifying before whatever committee that was. Uh, and to further support your point, uh, E. Michael Jones likes to say uh, in the 70s, Woody Allen was crowned president. Uh, there was something in the cultural zeitgeist about the Jewish culture sort of taking over. Yeah, the, the American geopolitical blunder uh, really created an environment for the ascendant ethnic group in America to really seize public control. I mean, they had already since the 1933 revolution, they, they had controlled many of the vital organs of state, but and they hadn't really put themselves in a public facing popular positions and they rode the anti-war train to those positions. And to this day, a lot of them, you know, feign these like, you know, old style sixties, anti-Vietnam type positions, but they support the, they support the war machine. They support American power. Of course they do. You know, it, it's like Jerry Rubin said, it's like we, we became the elite and that they did. They had no more use for, you know, throwing any more Molotov cocktails. They didn't need to do any of this anymore. And so this, in the context of this, I would also point to someone like Daniel Ellsberg, who's a popular folk hero of this crowd. How many people know that Daniel Ellsberg was best friends with people like Edward Lansdale and Lucien Conin, who were running the proto-Phoenix program stuff? Targeted He was going out on night raids with these people, okay? And it was one of these Phoenix operatives who said that he, in fact, was the one who told Ellsberg to release the Pentagon Papers, which in the context, anyone who knew anything about what was going on were, in fact, a nothing burger and another limited hangout that allowed Ellsberg to establish his credibility as some kind of, you know, anti-war folk hero. And also contribute to the downfall of Nixon. So this obscures the, these kinds of limited hangouts uh, and focus on these individual atrocities because the American... Uh, has this fundamental conceit that they're that they're somehow good, you know that they that they don't commit, you know, mass terror wars and mass slaughter of people and torture and rape, et cetera. You know, so it's these people are, are who are put in front of of your your average sort of humanitarian left leaning lemming, and, and they have very little understanding of where these people really come from. Know, who it is that they're working for. Well, the whole thing, it just sort of makes you kind of reflect on how the American political system is set up. There's so much uh, decentralization of, of power. I mean, look at what's happening right now with Trump and Congress and all the influences that are outside of the official political system affecting policy. There is very uh, little clear accountability from the top there there's a diffusion of power that really makes our system incredibly complicated and you know when when the media wants to go one way it it goes into these convoluted angles at targeting different aspects of whatever policy is happening at the time but the the strategies are are just 
are just absolutely insane. I mean, compared to what uh, Americans used to do during the Cold War with Kremlinology, and all you really need to do is understand, you know, who was going to be succeeding whom in the line to take over in the Kremlin. I mean, it was really a, a reduction on the order of probably a thousandfold in terms of the complexity uh, because of their, their system. It's just set up so much more hierarchically. Uh, but the way America does things, it's just it's just a mess. So I, it was by design, arguably, you know, since the beginning, because I think if you interpret the United States as basically an opportunity for people who have wealth to perpetuate that and, and grow that wealth as opposed to a political order, uh, it, it really is sort of what we get uh, as a consequence of that because we don't really have a true democracy. I mean, it's sort of a republic, but it's basically the people who have influence are the people who have money and power. And the rest of us are sort of left with this kind of lie that we're told that we have influence. And so we we're constantly sort of given these kind of uh, titrated amounts of dog treats that like try to satiate us to think that we're involved somehow. But a lot of it is basically just to manipulate us. And, and I'll use another Jewish intellectuals term. It's to manufacture a lot of consent around whatever the, the sort of, messy oligarchy is trying to maneuver towards the next piece of policy. So it, well, it's, just, it is, it's incredible. It is a very clever, I guess you could say, aspect of the American system that what you have is the, the, the elite get to have their cake and eat it too. That is, they can wage uh, brutal total warfare on random peasants. Well, and it was not total. I mean, that, that's part of the issue here. Okay, the, well, the I, violence was not you're the right. fundamental it's as, problem that I have with the Vietnam War is that you know, it's tempting to steal the Zizek line that like, oh, the problem with Hitler was that he was not uh, was not violent and ruthless enough. Uh, the the violence in Vietnam was not devoted towards productive ends. If you decide that you're going yes. to fight a war of insurgency, like this is the sort of shit that happens. So like your best bet is to ramp it up as quickly and violently as possible. Get it over with. If you've determined that winning this war is essential to your nation's security, like there's there's not a way to fight these kinds of wars, or really, realistically, any war that doesn't involve mass civilian casualties. Well, and is that how the, you know, I, I, like, got I, I, the North like, Vietnamese the, to... The idea of terror to? is like the, the deployment of force as political persuasion. Yeah. That, that's like essential to the concept of warfare. Like you cannot have a nice war. So like the problem is not like, oh, if we only would have given them a free hand, it's like we should not have been there in the first place if you're not prepared to deploy Germany 1945 levels of death and suffering. If you're not prepared to do that, then it's not essential, evidently, to the national interest. No, I I, I, I agree completely, and I probably should not have used the term total war because I, I take your point 100%. And the irony of the liberal revisionists are, again, they they are in favor of American power for the most part. Uh, I guess you may have a few odd actual anarchist types scattered in the midst, but they even buy into the McNamara-type quantitative metric of warfare. They just have a different... Uh, they just attribute different values. They want to see the 
minimization of civilian casualties and these kinds of things. Uh, but they're in favor because they, they believe America, uh, American democracy brings, brings order. And you got also the Amy Goodman types, which are, this is the point I was, I was getting to though, is they, they can wage, they can commit all forms of brutality that they wag their fingers at their enemies about. And then they can have it on the other hand, they can, they can prop up, they can whine about the same things that, that they're the ones doing. And then they can throw out a few fall guys. For example, Westmoreland was one of the guys who went against Westmoreland was a guy named Telford Taylor. And Telford Taylor is, is like, should be the poster child for the Michelle Stratum. He's a, uh, he's, he's the inner traitor personified Judaized to the core. And he was uh, <laughs> counsel for the prosecution at Nuremberg. And so he even wrote a book at one point, like Nuremberg in Vietnam, which just, uh, this is American hypocrisy to a T. I mean, if you think that you found justice at Nuremberg, then maybe you should go scour some more rice patties. But on the Nixon point, I, I, I do want to get back a little bit to this. You have these people. You also had Woodward on the other hand of that. Uh, you had, I mentioned Hirsch, you mentioned Ellsberg and Woodward, who also, by the way, you know, was naval intelligence. These people and his erstwhile Bernstein, uh, these people are all contributing in their own ways, especially the Pentagon Papers, to the downfall of Richard Nixon. And Nixon had made, you know, these counterculture icons are, are people who are working on behalf of the CIA. Because Nixon, th this is why Nixon had to be destroyed, particularly his looking into the drug trafficking situation which it was one of the factors that these limited hangouts would help to obscure that and the phoenix program uh in torture programs as well is the drug aspect which again is a topic for another show well but just briefly they were using dead soldiers coffins to transport heroin from what i know well yeah and the, and the south vietnamese government was a was a narco state <laughs> the golden triangle one uh, yeah. one of the yeah. uh, the titular legs it was it was an argo state that the cia was was propping up through these through these networks and their alliance with uh, corsican gangsters who were also participating personally in phoenix program i mean lucien conian was was uh closely tied with with the corsican cartels and he he was a uh, major phoenix operator but now you have the point where you you know you get you, you can sell the, the I mean the same types of tactics are being used, but you get some smooth talking mulatto, and you can make uh, mass torture and rape and uh, counterinsurgency uh, psychological warfare palpable to your average liberal. So, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about Vietnam is that, as far as I can tell. It's the first war where essentially the deep state in the form specifically of the CIA has essentially free reign. And every subsequent conflict follows the same pattern sooner or later. And, you know, we've already talked 
quite a bit about um, their uh, sort of use of the the Phoenix program as a testing ground for uh, these sorts of um, assassination campaigns and really you know the the attempt to disrupt enemy operational networks, which is really what that was. Like we we throw the term around a lot, like Phoenix program, but it really it was essentially you try to kill everyone in a leadership position of anything broadly communist affiliated. Not even communist affiliated. Anyone in a leadership position that is not uh, a wholly owned subsidiary of the United States government. So right. basically yeah. local mayors or, you know, yeah. anyone I mean, there, in there's any this... position of authority in whatever backwoods hamlet or, or yeah, small there, little there's town. the Selinsky concept of like, you've got the five, uh, the po- five point scale of allyship or like, you know, five is completely on your team. Four is like, uh, you know, I'm, I'll like allow you to operate, but I won't go out of my way. Three is neutral. Like two is opposed, but not actively. And one is like actually oppositional. And basically it's like, well, I kill everything, uh, with social prominence from uh, three down if they don't uh, get on the same page. Uh, and it creates new hierarchical structures because people who have your ear and you know are your trusted informants uh, now have the might of the United States uh, murder apparatus behind them. So if you right. piss them off, if you know they want to fuck your daughter or something and you say no, well, <laughs> you're going on the shit list, guy. Right, which is like, you know, extremely common like you have these these sorts of things happen if your goal is to actually destroy a power hierarchy like power hierarchies aren't just these like malign things this is how societies organize themselves and when you destroy those i mean there's not a single violent revolution that has been like fun or pleasant or necessarily a good idea um either a priori or ex facto so, I mean, like, again, like, I, I feel like I keep saying this, like, this is the sort of shit that happens if you decide that you're going to fight this war. And not just like in a shit happens sense, but in the sense that the people who are capable of exercising your goals will use these methods because these are the methods that have been demonstrated to be effective. And I'm not kidding about the like free hand, like, that's not just hyperbole. You can look up um, uh, you can look up these cards, and I thought they were a meme at first, um, but they were they were actually real. Um, there's a couple of collectors with uh, very expensive examples of these. Um, there's these little cards with a photo of some dude. It's like you know Staff Sergeant Ramirez or whatever, and it has this lovely bit of narrative. Uh, if you find the holder of this card, do not stop him. Do not arrest him. Do not question him. He is operating under the direct authority of the president of the United States. He is authorized to carry unusual weapons. He is authorized to commandeer vehicles. If he should happen to be found dead, uh, do not remove this card and inform your commanding officer immediately. Like this is like this is like Hollywood shit, but this was like an actual policy that you know these people operating under the uh, authority of the CIA you know, certainly not like Richard Nixon phoning up these guys with a job to do like in person they literally had a completely free hand and unlimited resources to accomplish 
whatever goals were presented to them or, in fact, whatever they decided to do along the wayside. And I think in this book, there's a really good concrete example of how this shakes out in practice, although I don't believe he was uh, alleged at all to be affiliated with the CIA. Um, Nick, do you remember uh, the uh, the name of this fellow? Um, we talked about him a little bit before the show. Uh, no, I don't have it on hand. I, I think you were. Oh, you're talking about Ewell, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. The butcher of the Delta. We're talking about the Mekong Delta because in, in the later part, oh, I think it was, it was like 68 or 69. There was an operation on the Mekong Delta where they, they escalated and they dropped in the span of a year or so, um, something like 5,000 bombs and, uh, the thousand, Eight, 1800 napalm canisters or something uh, and in this yeah there was this this one individual who racked up a very high personal body count yeah so the distinguishing feature of this guy and I, I do not unfortunately have the book in front of me um, and I'm bad at remembering names so uh, I'm not positive that it was uh, EOL but the distinguishing feature of this guy he had volunteered to go to Vietnam you know good for you buddy patriot uh, he kept volunteering to stay in Vietnam. He was quoted in several uh, news articles uh, in the midst of uh, these sort of horrific battles and engagements and whatever. He ended up being on site of a half dozen or so uh, massacres. He actually ended up uh, adopting a couple of Vietnamese orphans so that he could stay in the country longer. And it gradually became clear that this man was effectively a serial killer. Um, if you actually talked to some of the people in the same units that he was in, he uh, was known to um, essentially be in this war for the thrill of killing. And it's astonishing that given that that was his predilection, that he didn't end up doing something dangerous and uh, you know, finding himself dead earlier. But this, this sort of person does actually exist. Like you actually... Selected for. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's astonishing. I mean, this guy must have been, like, not too bright, like, if he found himself, like, just in the infantry for the duration of the war when it sounds like he would have been quite happy uh, drilling kneecaps uh, in a uh, you know, dungeon somewhere in Saigon um, and perhaps better employed in that capacity. But, I mean, this is, we've used the term before on this show, strategic asshole reserve. Like, these are the, the cadre of people that you deploy because your goal is to employ maximum violence on the population. This There's is why really, Phoenix utilized uh, people from Vietnamese prisons. They used right. just lo local psychopaths that they could unleash. They, there's a really good book, um, The Remnants of War, talking about um, some of the Balkan and uh, Eastern European conflicts, where they make the case that essentially after the initial uh, call to arms goes up and after all the the patriotic soldiers or whatever have been fighting for a while or you know after everything has just kind of gone to shit and anybody who can get out has gone out, you're left with entire units full of people like soccer hooligans who just actually really enjoy fighting. And, you know, historically, the 
one of the main missions of human societies and the state per se has been, okay, well, how do you usefully employ these people? And the better you are at employing them, the by far better of a state apparatus you become because you become more effective at deploying state violence via these people. Yeah. And to me, the ugliness of the, the American system is just the denial about this. It would be more palpable to me. I mean, you could have a very aesthetic, uh, dare I say, metal, uh, irrational war in South Asia if you just owned it. If you just owned it. But the the American needs to be be told that, you know, he needs to be patted on the head and, and told that he is good. Well, I have some comments about that. So what strikes me about the, the my life thing, first off, is, well, why is the media not reporting some of the atrocities that the North Vietnamese were doing to American soldiers? I mean, maybe they didn't have, you know, the the line, you know, from uh, Mr. Cohen on that information. But there were some pretty terrible uh, torture practices conducted to these guys. And the fact that they're taking the side of, I guess, the enemy yeah, it went both ways. bizarre, first off. But second of all, you're right about the inability of Americans to just understand the nature of warfare in general and the notion that we're somehow above it uh, makes us completely ineffective. And I don't think this notion was really something that happened until probably after the Second World War um, and maybe even before that. But the, the, the reason you have things like Phoenix uh, and the way they conducted it uh, was because of the inability of the military to conduct basically brutal operations and, and then be not criticized for it in the media, which then eventually loses the political power at home because of the way our system is structured. And there were, I mentioned this a long time ago in one of our earlier shows, uh, but one of the guys who was in the Phoenix program, Chip Tatum, who then later became a very big critic of H.W. Bush because they kept uh, forcing him to, to fly airplanes for them, which was containing a lot of cocaine, as it turned out, from the uh, Central American operations of the CIA. And he was basically going to whistleblow uh, on this stuff if they forced him to do some things he didn't want to do. But during the Vietnam War, he was um, drafted and he was basically put into these operations. And one of them was uh, where he had to basically fly in a team of uh, special forces to go either into Laos or Cambodia, I can't remember which. And they were also accompanied by some Vietnamese uh, on that on that mission, and none of the soldiers actually knew each other. Uh, and so this is all on purpose and by design because this way, and they're probably giving fake names to each other because There's it probably breaks, some Koreans in there too. Could be. It breaks down the ability of people to accuse the ultimate person who's making the decisions. Uh, and it could have even been Nixon. I think uh, Tatum was, was basically saying that... Uh, it, it probably was, and whoever the the CIA director was involved, Colby or whoever it was. It was Colby. Yeah, Colby ran and the um, the operation basically landed uh, wherever they were supposed to be. They were, I think, they were in uh, an airfield that was being used by the North Vietnamese, and their job was basically to go and shoot uh, the. Um, I think it was like the the Lotians or the the Cambodians. 
wearing the North Vietnamese uniforms to basically poses a, a false flag operation to try to get the uh, the non-Vietnamese onto the American side to allow them to operate more freely uh, against things like the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which were operating outside of Vietnam, making it very difficult to intercept these soldiers attacking Americans and South Vietnamese. Uh, but what ended up happening, w- which makes this even more vicious, because again, they can't have evidence of this in the American press, is that the Vietnamese soldiers who were on that mission, or Koreans or whoever the hell it was, um, as soon as the Americans completed their job, uh, they heard um, the, uh, the the lower receiver of some uh, M16s or whatever they were ha- they were shooting uh, click, and that basically clued them into the fact that the uh, the, the Vietnamese were going to shoot them, and they uh, they realized it soon enough, and they ended up killing them instead. But they also had these instructions uh, to burn any bodies that they uh that had died uh on that mission because again you can't leave a trace and so not only were they being double crossed and being uh basically left behind enemy lines to to die then probably be incinerated uh, but they also had every individual had the instructions to do that to everybody else so it was really a vicious system and it, it it's really not necessary if you basically just as a country can commit to something but the way our system works is that you have to go into these convoluted nonsensical and really treacherous things in order to pull off something like this because you do have to do things like what they were doing which was basically go after the real supply lines that are affecting your enemy and you know our stupid you know political system doesn't allow you to even do that um and so this is what you get they allow you to do that they they're the ones who have you do it what they don't allow you to do is is talk about it (laughs) well it's the hypocrisy again and this is what is is so maddening to people who, you know, respect things like, you know, honor. It's like, look, um, you know, I, I say what I mean and I, and I mean what I say. And that, that doesn't work, you know, when you're dealing with the CIA. It, it's and, what the American, it's what makes the American so ugly. It's as, as he rapes and murders your family and, you know, turns your ancestral village into a smoldering crater. He starts talking to you about democracy and, homosexuality or something like <laughs> you know it's it, it's that's what's so repugnant about about american imperialism and it always has been and also to that point i should add i've always thought it was interesting the extent to which vietnam war revision war revisionism is acceptable whereas war revisionism in the second world war is not obviously it's not like some great brain teaser why this is but mm. Seems uh, you know. pretty straightforward to me. I mean, that's not the only <laughs> like you're you're far more able to question uh, things like the the U.S. like every other war, but I mean this the second civil war is essentially the the founding myth of the you know the U.S. Yeah. depending 100- on how you count third or fourth republic. One hundred percent. But it's it, when these people win the liberals, and I respect. Terse's work, like I, I, he did a he did a good job. He wrote a good book, you know, good job, guy. But these people, their their whole narrative about war crimes is ultimately incoherent because they they're not realistic about how power operates. And all you have to do is point to their good war to show that you know they're full of they're full of air. You know, they they have <laughs> because they'll defend it. They'll say, oh yes, but it was necessary here. To level German cities and mass murder. But, but Nick, we would have been speaking German or have been a lampshade 
if we hadn't fought that war. To quote a Michael Savage line. <laughs> yeah. So I would just, uh, like I said, I'd like to do some more specific content on Vietnam at some point here. But I think, to my mind, looking back, what I don't really see from revisionists because it's something that's ignored by by people on on the far right. Because typically the the right wing position on Vietnam was like, oh, my communism bad, blah blah blah. Uh, you know, spineless liberals sabotaging the American war effort and so on and so forth. Uh, I I think what we miss is that the system's ability to profit, or at least certain aspects of this, certain groups. The Jews, in particular, and the sort of faux anti-war liberals who are, in fact, you know, tied at the hip with the establishments, many of which are involved with the CIA. I'm looking at you, Amy Goodman. Uh, these types, they profited from this war, whereas you know the good old boys, they went insane, uh, became maimed and crippled. Uh, American wealth was squandered, uh, blood and treasure as usual, and the people who profit, a lot of the same people who, who gained from this are the people who were, who were cynically uh, maneuvering their way through the suffering and the carnage and you know putting forward these, these gay moral platitudes. There's no fortunate sons on this podcast. America is, in the words of Z-Man, whom I quote quite a bit, but I, I think he's worth checking out if you haven't checked him out, the Z-Man blog. He says America is a bust out. It's basically, and it, if you think of it, you know, really just t take, take a 30,000 or a 30 million foot view of just imagine you're an alien looking down on this, basically this really unpopulated continent. It makes sense because there's just a huge number of people coming in trying to grab the resources and they really don't have much in common other than the fact that they're a bunch of greedy guys who didn't get along with the people they grew up with. And so they sort of ended up there. And so if you're going to anticipate where this country goes over the next 200 years or so of its progression, you would, you wouldn't really be surprised if you end up with things like Vietnam where you, you have a bunch of military contractors basically f just, completely busting out the u.s federal budget at the expense of the american consumer who has to put up with 10 plus percent inflation every year because of it and the fact that the uh, the dollar was taken off the gold standard as a result of this overspending by the federal government you wouldn't be surprised by these sneaky journalists going behind uh, soldiers backs and trying to profit off them uh, off the uh, the atrocities of uh, Vietnamese victims really not caring about them, but really just trying to get that Pulitzer Prize or attention on the nightly news. Uh, you really wouldn't be surprised if you saw uh, the way this war was conducted um, for real no clear reason other than the fact that the United States is some vague mission to save the world from this ideology, which it doesn't agree with. It, um, it really is a confusing country, and it really takes perhaps some perspective or just being not from America to understand it. But as an American, um, it's really embarrassing when you kind of look back at how this country has conducted a lot of things. Uh, there are things to be proud of. There's a lot of uh, 
new ideas and, and approaches to things that have been solved in America because of that chaotic environment. But whenever it tries to do something as a whole, it usually falls in its face. America is a savage barbarian who can't look in the mirror. I, I'm reminded of the... Uh, I saw that film, that absolute uh, shit-tier propaganda film about the uh, Navy SEALs, the same SEALs who would be uh, starting in, in what, Vietnam. Was it Navy SEALs? Oh, the... Because that movie God. kicks ass. No, that movie that movie is good. No, it's the... Uh, the God, man, it it's the one where they're in the they're in the Hindu Kush, and uh, it's based off of uh, the guy who pulled a bunch of lies about uh, uh, Mike Murphy, Michael Murphy. Um, not his book; he died. Uh, but the guy who survived, uh, Is it, uh, Lone Survivor, or yeah, uh, that one, that one. Yeah, I'm reminded of this, this scene in that. It's taken from the book, which is uh, presumably just some kind of fiction geared for. Um, boomers but there is a it opens with like the whole the whole sordid affair it begins because they refuse to execute this goat herder (laughs) (laughs) which contextually it's just like look man like if you like they would have that's such like a fucking hollywood trope though it's like and they use that in every fucking war movie like i just watched the uh the of course because this is the, the image zombie, they want to project uh, about war how american movie. wars are fought they can't but, which do i do honest. i do endorse overlord or uh overlord oh, yeah i think lord. that's the name of the uh the movie um it's uh you mean the it's actually world very war well doc, the francis uh uh, what's his name? No, no, the uh, the one that just came out, um, or not just, but like within the last couple of years, it's like a World War II zombie movie. It's oh, that pretty good. Terrible. Uh, it's it's okay. It's good. I don't no. know if you would like it. No, I wouldn't. I thought it was. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was well executed. Um, but you know, of course, well, the like, there's this whole like uniforms. we gotta we gotta like save the kid subplot. Like you don't even yeah. don't even picture it as like a World War II movie. It's just like a generic like. Oh, we got these like spooky scientists, and they're trying to like do something spooky, and like you know, we come across them, and we got to stop them, like that kind of movie. Um, but of course, they have the like, oh, like this lady, she came across our platoon trying to uh, invade Normandy like the day before, so we can clear the way for them. We can't just kill her, guys. It's like, well, what, what was your like? what was your plan for dropping into this village? Because it kind of seems like that's a likely eventuality. Like you got like rules of engagement there, buddy. I don't know. It's just that, that trope of like, uh, the moral conflict of like, well, now we're going to be discovered. It's also just like a plot advancing, uh, device of like, well, we need to be discovered somehow. Like we need, we need like a character to interact with at this point because, if we just start shooting because we did our jobs and we came in and nobody knows that we're here, then there's no actual like human to human conflict because we haven't personified anyone. Yeah. I mean, I think there, though the American military machine has probably learned a few lessons as to how to actually, you know, practical lessons as to how to conduct these kinds of terror wars. I think that the, the real lesson was learned from the PR department how to sell these better 
but I, I think it's gotten they they have perfected it because as i mean the, the uh, war the, in afghanistan has gone on now longer than vietnam and yet there's no never That's been a serious war in american history mm, yeah it was previously vietnam but yeah it's gone on longer and it's going to continue anyone actually believe that like i swear i will make a bet uh, if if listeners want to come in and credibly pledge Bitcoin, I'll even take even odds. The war in Afghanistan will outlive the American Empire. We will still have like lost legions fighting in Afghanistan as the U.S. capital is non-metaphorically in flames. Yeah, you better use Bitcoin, not U.S. dollars, for that one. Then, <laughs> in that scenario, yeah, <laughs> yeah, man. I mean. I think nothing shows the hypocrisy of the the fake anti-war movement than that. I mean, a lot of these people who were big in the Vietnam days, uh, they're still alive, and they're in positions of power now. <laughs> well, Elliot Abrams is uh, now our point man in Venezuela. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Fuck it. Death to America. I'm 